Welcome to episode 217 of the CyberLaw podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us for this special episode where, once again, blockchain takes over the podcast. We've ripped the microphone from Stuart Baker's hands. This is Alan Cohn, um, and we are here to talk uh, about blockchain and cryptocurrency and all things in this world um, that are going on, particularly a number of recent developments um, and it's kind of a state of play in several issues. Uh, today, I'm joined by Jack Hayes, who is of counsel in our International Regulation and Compliance Group, looking at economic sanctions, anti-money laundering, export controls, other issues. Uh, Lisa Zarlenga, who is co-chair of the firm's tax practice um, and the lead for tax issues uh, within uh, our blockchain and cryptocurrency practice. Um, Chelsea Parker, uh, who is uh, the business operations lead for the Blockchain Alliance and uh, a key part of our blockchain and cryptocurrency practice. Uh, and I'm Alan Cohn, co-chair of the blockchain and cryptocurrency practice here at uh, Steptoe um, and formerly the Assistant Secretary for Strategy at the Department of Homeland Security. So let's get started. So it is May of 2018. Um, and what we've seen uh, in the past uh, year now in the past five months, six months of the beginning of 2018, um, has just been uh, an explosion of interest in this space. Uh, as our listeners know from previous episodes where we've taken over the podcast, we've looked at issues involving uh, investment. We've looked at issues involving uh, regulation. We've looked at in issues involving uh, the expansion of the space. We are now kind of hitting a point where many of the, ma the major regulatory agencies uh, are weighing in on cryptocurrency, uh, on blockchain technology, and particularly on crypto assets, uh, this new class of assets um, that has emerged from its beginnings as, uh, as Bitcoin uh, just about 10 years ago. Um, so what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about some of the cryptocurrency, uh, the currency-based regulations, um, and how they apply to cryptocurrency, crypto tokens, uh, some of the recent developments. We're going to talk about some of the tax issues, um, and we're going to look at um, some of the trends uh, that are coming on the, on the horizon in this area. So first, let's start with currency regulations. Uh, this is the realm of agencies like the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network uh, at the Treasury Department, FinCEN, uh, and other regulators. Uh, Jack, um, Maybe you could start by just giving a quick summary, uh, refresh for the for uh, our listeners about how does FinCEN view cryptocurrency? Sure, uh, it's great that you asked that question, Alan. Uh, and actually, in March of this year, FinCEN wrote a letter to Senator Wyden of the Finance Committee, reiterating its position on the topic, uh, and primarily, <clears throat> there are a few important takeaways from this letter. One was that uh, FinCEN is collaborating with the SEC on securities issues, as well as the CFTC on derivatives and fraud and market manipulation issues. Uh, secondly, uh, this letter was addressed not only to persons inside the United States that are issuing ICOs, but if you are abroad, but you are operating in substantial part within the United States, even if located outside the United States, you could be subject to uh, its guidance and interpretations. And then 
three, I think, and I'm leaving three to be the 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 main point is um, <clears throat> persons that are engaged in ICOs could be viewed as accepting some type of virtual currency in exchange for another virtual currency or fiat currency or other substitute for value. And that is considered a money transmitter under FinCEN's regulations. Uh, this dates back to at least 2013. Well, the regulations were amended in 2011. Right, but uh, the FinCEN issued its first guidance in 2013, right, that, that laid out kind of its general viewpoint. That's right, and this letter refers back to that guidance and makes some interesting statements that this is just a reiteration of our policy that has existed for quite some time, but I think the actual letter communicating this to uh, Congress was eye-opening for uh, a number of different um, people in the ICO space. Yeah, so basically with respect to cryptocurrency, right, um, FinCEN, as when one was one of the earlier regulators to make a statement on this, and also one of, and FinCEN also one of the earliest regulators in the currency space worldwide, to make a definitive state about, a statement about cryptocurrency, said two things that were were uh, were useful and that that allow for some regulatory certainty and set the stage for uh, for today for the recent activities. Number one, that cryptocurrency is basically just just currency, um, and so uh, if you are handling, using, exchanging, administering cryptocurrency, then you fall under the same rules as you would. Uh, for someone who's handling regular currency. And then second, they laid out three categories right. um, of people or entities that might handle, right? Those were users, exchangers, and administrators. Right. With exchangers being similar to what I just described earlier, uh, someone who takes or accepts cryptocurrency or fiat or other value and then transmits that to another person, uh, and an administrator, interestingly, was evaluated as someone who is either issuing a virtual currency and, and redeeming a virtual currency. So administrators and exchangers were considered subject to the rules. If you are a user of cryptocurrency, you are not subject to the rules. And the, and the reason why we're, we're describing why this is important is if you are subject to the FinCEN regulations – Regardless of whether you are under the SEC's rules, the CFTC's rules, for FinCEN purposes, uh, you are legally required to adopt an anti-money laundering compliance program with at least four pillars of responsibilities, uh, and that adds, as a money transmitter, a, a type of money services business, and that could impose significant burdens on anyone that, in this space, including for ICO. And you mentioned that uh, that. FinCEN can reach beyond U.S. borders on this, and we saw this from last summer's prosecution of a crypt, an offshore cryptocurrency exchange called BC, BTCE, right? And it's uh, its founder Alexander Vinnick. That's that's correct. There was a civil uh, enforcement action last summer against BTCE, uh, which I would encourage anyone outside of the United States to read. Uh, <clears throat> that discusses a number of factors of why that was brought. Uh, and that was really focused on a virtual currency exchange, uh, but that exchange had allegedly uh, numerous U.S. person customers, was transmitting uh, payments to and from the United States, 
Uh, and <clears throat> you're right. Uh, now, uh, Mr. Vinnick's extradition is being sought for criminal purposes. And so, based on what I was saying earlier, there's been more uh, collaboration among uh, the various agencies to investigate and enforce compliance with um, rules in this area. So with rules in this area, we have um, a set of, of uh, a set of guidance dating back to 2013. Uh, we have examples of extraterritorial application based on kind of, uh, nexus with the United States. Uh, and now we have some at least some beginnings of clarity in terms of the letter back up to the hill on how issuers of tokens who are conducting uh, generation events or what's typically referred to as initial coin offerings should should be thinking about their activities with respect to FinCEN's regulations. Uh, I think that's definitely right. Anyone in this space, even outside the United States, needs to consider are they covered by these rules, whether it's FinCEN or the SEC or CFTC. Uh, there's going to be much more scrutiny on these types of operations. Uh, and I will get the trends later, but I can only see that uh, increasing in the future. Um, I know Lisa is going to be speaking about tax issues, but it's important to understand that the Internal Revenue Service is the authority uh, delegated by FinCEN to investigate these issues. So not only are there um, AML compliance requirements, but this also leads to other types of liabilities that people need to be aware of. Yeah, and it's not just federal agencies too, right? Um, we had... Uh, an interesting um, entrance into uh, into this space by the New York State Attorney General's office, right? Who had uh, who had up to now had been we'd all suspected might make an appearance, um, but had not uh, to date done so uh, until very recently. No, that's right. And I think uh, anyone operating in the United States previously, we've been focused on the federal regulator regulatory issues, but the states also have have an approach just like in banking and other sorts of more traditional financial institutional services, insurance. There are state regulators. State regulators can launch um, anti-money laundering examinations. And as we saw most recently in New York with the transparency question, the voluntary transparency questionnaire by which the New York Attorney General asked different virtual currency exchanges, not only those in the United States, but outside the United States to voluntarily provide information uh, underscores this risk, not only at the federal level, but the state level. And in particular with New York, we see, we'll probably talk about the bit license in a little bit, but <clears throat> it, we see the broadening. So going beyond maybe what FinCEN requires the state, in order to obtain a license, for example, or an exemption, may require different businesses in the space to provide even more additional information, go beyond the federal requirements, uh, adopt heightened procedures to be able to operate in their state or service customers from their state. And it's interesting. I think Chelsea will talk a bit about this um, in a few moments. Um a number of companies left New York as a result of the bit license um, and have been uh, hopeful that uh, that that stance may change. Um, and we're seeing that companies are taking different positions on the attorney general questionnaire. Two companies in particular made public statements um, about what they intend to do uh, in response to the questionnaire. Right? That's, that's exactly right. Uh, 
And it's interesting because these are all private entities, uh, but I think, um, <clears throat> or primarily they're private. And uh, one of the interesting features of the initial questionnaire when it was received it as this was all about transparency and publishing results of, of the surveys w- would be promulgated for the public, which you can understand from a consumer regulatory perspective. But if I'm a private company and engage in this space, there are legitimate sort of business competition and proprietary reasons why I don't want all of my information out in the public domain. So um, <clears throat> we, we have seen different exchanges take different approaches in terms of you know, well, we're withdrawn. We've withdrawn from the New York market. We weren't interested in the bit license, uh, and so why should I answer? There are there are people in that in that camp. There are others that have decided, well, we're just going to respond, uh, be responsive, and cooperate with law enforcement. But this really doesn't affect us. And then there are other companies that are in the U.S. They have the bit license, so they have a vested interest, uh, and they've yeah, so so. It's, it's been an interesting dynamic from a state regulatory standpoint. Yeah, to just kind of to, to give the names to the to the illusions, right? <laughs> Coinbase, uh, the the large um, largest cryptocurrency exchange in the U.S., uh, has signaled that it will be cooperating, providing uh, answers, and welcomes the New York State Attorney General's interest. Um, and Kraken, uh, right. another law, uh, long-standing exchange, has, has indicated, in essence. Uh, you drove us out of New York with the bit license, so we don't have any more nexus to New York, so we're not going to respond to this uh, to this questionnaire. Which both seem reasonably plausible to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so very interesting. I mean, a lot, lots going on in, the, in this area. Again, one of the areas that the U.S. has been regulating in, or at least providing guidance in for, the, for, uh, for several years now, um, and we're beginning to see more both evolution – some clarity, but also some new issues popping up in, in that area. That's right. Um, so another one of the, era, the regulators um, to provide guidance early was the Internal Revenue Service, right? Uh, and so, Lisa, the IRS has been active in this space since 2014, right, providing right. guidance, uh, whether welcome or not, on, on how <laughs> they were going to view cryptocurrency. Right, Alan. Um, <clears throat> back in 2014, the IRS issued a notice, um, notice 2014-21, which a lot of people in the industry actually know this notice by number now, which is uncommon in the tax area. Um, and that notice generally provides that convertible virtual currency will be treated as property for tax purposes. So it kind of takes the opposite approach of FinCEN. Um, and it specifically says that it will not be treated as foreign currency, um, primarily because it's not a fiat currency anywhere in the world. So they treat it as property, which means that for tax purposes, every time you spend your cryptocurrency, you are engaging in a taxable exchange. If your cryptocurrency is appreciated, then you will have a gain when you spend that currency to receive something else, even if you don't cash it out. Uh, which came as a surprise to many people uh, in this industry. The notice specifically applies to convertible virtual currency. I, I will note that virtual currency is technically probably broader than cryptocurrency. Um, it seems like it's not used that much in the industry these days. Cryptocurrency seems to be used more. The notice, convertible virtual currency is basically any currency that's convertible to cash or fiat right. currency. Right, so any any. Convertible virtual currency would be a virtual currency convertible for cash. Exactly. Cryptocurrency would be a subset of that. Exactly. Uh, cryptographically secured 
virtual currency that's also exchangeable for fiat. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Okay. So, um, so it sets some basic rules, um, which were kind of the domain of hobbyists and, and were somewhat esoteric until the explosion of interest in cryptocurrency and crypto tokens in 2017. Um, and that led to a lot more interest in, um, uh, in how, uh, cryptocurrency was going to be addressed. So there's some basic, some basic concepts of basis um, that uh, that we start with, right? So, so kind of how how you talked about, you know, you're buying, you're selling, um, even if you're transacting, these are taxable events. They have to be accounted. How do you how do you go about do, doing that? Right. It's it's actually really tricky. The IRS did not provide much guidance on how to actually account for the cryptocurrency and. And in a lot of cases, it didn't matter until 2017 when the value exploded. And so you had a lot of people that bought their Bitcoin at, you know, a hundred bucks and now it's worth 19,000. Bless those people. I know. They, <laughs> they did very well. Um, it, technically as property, you specifically identify the piece of property that you're selling and you would, you know, have a basis according to that. So if you say, I'm going to sell this Bitcoin that has a $100 basis and I'm going to compute my gain based on the fair market value on the exchange that I'm, that I'm transacting on, um, that's a, a reasonable way to do it. A lot of people hold their cryptocurrency in third party wallet providers. And so they don't really have the control over which Bitcoin or which piece of cryptocurrency is being transacted in. And, there are a number of rules in the tax area for identifying basis when it comes to securities, stock and securities that are held in brokerage accounts. You know, there are first in, first out um, assumptions or last in, first out. And you see some of the exchanges and the wallet providers making some of those assumptions with respect to the cryptocurrency. Right. So, you know, you kind of so in this area, we're now wrestling with. Right. Okay, so it's property. How do all of these rules associated with property now apply? So that's one thing is kind of just how do you figure out your basis and then what do you, what do you pay tax? But, but things, things have happened in this world and in particular one kind of very high profile, high volume thing happened in 2017 that went to what if I, what if I'm not even doing anything and all of a sudden I get a new asset? Right, right. I think what you might be referring to are the hard forks yeah. that occurred in 2017. And there actually were a number of them. The high profile ones, of course, were Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold, I think, were the, the biggest ones. A hard fork is basically you have a divergence in the blockchain where you, you, you kind of have a copy of the software. There's a new version of the software that's created. And going forward, you know, the, the computer network that verifies transactions on one chain are not going to be verifying transactions on the other chain, which leads to a situation where you have your private key that you can use to spend your Bitcoin or your Bitcoin cash. And on day one, you can use that private key to spend Bitcoin. And on day two, after the hard fork, you can use that private key to spend either Bitcoin or Bitcoin cash. Right. So in August uh, of 2017, uh, August 27, Wow, that's good. I just remember um, August. <laughs> uh you know, you would go to bed holding, you know, four Bitcoin and you'd wake up in the morning holding four Bitcoin and and four Bitcoin cash. Right. Um, and Bitcoin continued its march upward. So you suffer, you had no diminution in value. 
and Bitcoin Cash immediately had value, and that continued to appreciate. Right. <clears throat> so what do you do then? So there's this big dilemma as, as to whether the hard fork and the receipt of the Bitcoin Cash is a taxable event. Um, there, it's interesting. If you ask a tax nerd whether you thought a taxable event occurred... And we don't advise asking tax nerds <laughs> things without proper precise... Right, you've got to be ready for that. So. Most of them will say, yes, there's a taxable event because there's case law, Supreme Court case law, that says any accession to wealth is considered a taxable event as soon as you exercise dominion and control over it. So arguably, as soon as you've exercised dominion and control to spend or to take possession of your Bitcoin cash, that could be a taxable event. But if you talk to people who understand the mechanics of how the blockchain works and are more technically focused, they would say, well, no, actually all it did was split. You had a single asset that split into two assets. And there is some old... Um, common law in the tax area that provides some analogies to this. And Alan loves me talking about this. It's the pregnant livestock. If you buy a pregnant cattle, for example, or a pregnant horse, and you assign a certain value to that, and then the horse gives birth, that's not going to be a taxable event. You're just going to assign some of the basis in your original asset to the new asset. And when you sell that, recognize gain. And it's a similar, it's a similar situation for you know, growing timber on land or harvesting fruit from fruit trees. So there's a lot of different analogies in the tax area. Um, and I think people are basically taking a reasonable position, you know, because the IRS didn't provide any guidance. So Right. And so then a number of people took their Bitcoin cash, said, this isn't going anywhere. I'm a Bitcoin person. And they converted, right? They, they converted or sold their, uh, their Bitcoin cash uh, in exchange for more Bitcoin. Um how do you deal with that? So we got a lot of questions about that as well. And in fact, there were a lot of investors who generally took the position that as long as I wasn't cashing out my cryptocurrency, then I don't have to pay tax on that. Then in other words, it is a series of like-kind exchanges. Um, the tax law provides that if you exchange property for other like-kind property, then your basis just carries over and you don't actually recognize a taxable gain um, at that time. Um, the problem is that the IRS takes a fairly narrow view of what property is like kind. Um, and so there, there is a question of can you, there are some people, some practitioners took the view that you can never do a like kind exchange of cryptocurrency because they're all too different. Other people took the view you can always do it. Everything's a like kind exchange. And then there are people in the middle, probably I, I fall in that category where you have to look at each exchange and see how similar the cryptocurrencies are. And I would say that you have sort of an argument that Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash is probably the closest like-kind exchange that you have among the currencies. Yeah, so maybe if you want to take that like Ether and Ether Classic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Okay, so and at the end of the day, what do we think that the IRS is going to? You know, what do you think their interest is for 2017 to get it right or just to start getting reporting going? I think it's probably kind of the latter. They have been trying to work on guidance, and I think they are having a hard time getting agreement within the, you know, within the IRS and within Treasury as to what the position ought to be. I will point out that the 1031 argument doesn't apply going forward. Um, the tax law that was enacted at the end of 2017 basically applies the 1031 like-kind treatment only to real estate. So it takes away that potential avenue for tax-free treatment for cryptocurrency. So I would assume that you're unlikely to see guidance 
in that area. Yeah. But they had been looking at the hard fork. They've been looking at reporting issues, um, you know, FATCA and FBAR, which kind of goes a little bit to, right. to what um, Jack was talking what about. <laughs> so FATCA is, if you have a foreign financial account, you are supposed to be reporting that. And the actual, the financial institution is supposed to be reporting it. Even the, the foreign financial institution is supposed to be reporting it to either its government or to the IRS. Um, FBAR is also a financial, a foreign financial account reporting mechanism. There are slightly different requirements that apply for both reporting regimes. But if you have, you know, say a wallet account at a foreign um, exchange. If you're a U.S. person. If you're a right. U.S. person or if you have a foreign bank account or some other foreign account that holds cryptocurrency, you should be looking at those reporting regimes. Right. Yeah. Um, and we'll just consider it uh, FBAR. In fact, it would be like UPS. It doesn't, it doesn't stand for anything. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and people um, use it. Just use those. those uh, um. Right. Um, and so there was another way that you could come in, to, you could accede to wealth, right, as the, uh, as the um, Supreme Court said, uh, with respect to tokens, right? So um, we talked a bit about token generation or initial coin offerings, and um, uh, you had a real explosion in this area, 2017, lots of different issuances. As the year went on, um, people be- started to become more cautious, perhaps, about the way that they were conducting activities. And they also wanted to focus more on getting tokens in the hands of people who might actually use the platforms rather than people looking for speculation uh, or speculative gains, particularly among general investors, not uh, not accredited investors who might, uh, who might um, purchase uh, tokens, for example, in a pre-sale in bulk in a private placement, but might uh, might be interested in participating in purchasing tokens when they become available. So companies tried uh, a new approach, uh, a, m- a number of new dr- approaches, one of them being an airdrop, right? So you could go and sign up on a Telegram uh, listserv or, or uh, sorry, on a Telegram account or a listserv, um, and when the tokens became available, they would simply airdrop them uh, typically to your Ether wallet. What about that? <laughs> Um, I, I would say it depends, but it's likely going to be taxable income to the recipient as long as they take control over it and and try to you know spend it or acknowledge it in their account or whatever. Um, the it's interesting because the token issuances, um, the tax treatment of those depend on what the tokens represent. It, they could represent an equity interest in the platform. For example, they might carry voting rights or they might carry rights to distributions of the profits, and that looks a little like equity. Um, they could be treated as property under the IRS notice if they're convertible to cash. Um, they could just be treated as prepaid goods or services on the platform. A lot of these platforms provide goods and services, and the token is the way to access those goods and services. Um, and... So the investor would be taxed depending on what those are treated as. If they receive them as an air, and they're usually paying for those tokens, so um, they're contributing either cryptocurrency or fiat currency to the issuer to get those tokens. If you're not paying anything for it, it's likely that you've received an accession to wealth and are going to be taxed on that. Yeah, so fascinating stuff, um, even for the non-tax nerds. Um, <laughs> To you know, oftentimes people forget about the tax treatment of of these assets, um, and but it, it's requiring the tax law to evolve, and, the, and it's certainly the the way that we, uh, as individuals, and attorneys, um, and then ultimately the IRS, think about these assets um, and how it makes sense 
to tax them. So, um, along those lines, though perhaps not along the, um, well, partially along the tax nerd lines, um, the crypto world and all sorts of hangers-on descended on New York City uh, this past week for um, what had originally been, starting a couple of years ago, the Consensus Conference, the kind of the primary um, industry conference for, uh, for blockchain and cryptocurrency, um, and has now blossomed into New York City Blockchain Week, uh, rife with events and activities and parties with Snoop Dogg. So, um, <laughs> Chelsea, you want to give us kind of a, a rundown of, of some of the, the things you saw there and some of the some of the most interesting things uh, that to come out of last week? I'm sure listeners want to know if you saw Snoop Dogg. I unfortunately <laughs> did not see Snoop Dogg, um, but there was definitely a lot of energy in New York this past week. Um, consensus in and of itself tripled in size with over 8,500 attendees. And there were about 30, I think over 30 official conferences and events that were part of New York Blockchain Week. And that doesn't account for all the side parties and events like the Snoop Dogg Conference. Um, So it was a really exciting time to be there. Um, There was a lot of discussion about regulation and what role that plays um, in kind of balancing regulatory aspects with encouraging innovation in the technology. Yeah, so what what kinds of things, you know, I noticed, for example... um, an interesting focus on um, custody, uh, Mm -hmm. questions of as institutional investors want to enter this space, and they do, um, they're also scared to death of holding cryptocurrency. And of course, you don't actually hold cryptocurrency, um, you hold passwords, private passwords that enable you to directly access uh, wallets and different money, um, which is scaring, you know, uh, institutional investors to death. And so institutional investors tend to look to uh, custodians to hold funds. But nobody knows what a custodian is in this space and whether one needs to be a qualified custodian under SEC rules or what the standards are for custodians um, or whether, you know, whether cryptocurrency companies can become custodians, whether traditional custodians can become cryptocurrency companies. Um, which was an interesting question. Um, what other things did you see that kind of piqued your interest this week along those lines? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And more generally, I think there were a lot of panels discussing unanswered questions and how, particularly in an enterprise application space, how these technologies can be implemented. Um, and from a scalability or interoperability perspective, how these companies can use the technologies uh, right now. Yep. So we we at Steptoe contributed uh, our own uh, offering to that space, right? Um, having a discussion around um, blockchain and supply chain, um, and how regulations concerning international trade, um, importation, customs, uh, um, uh, country of origin labeling, um, uh, obligations on retailers, uh, all fit together into supply chain management, which is seen as one of the uh, maybe key emerging areas for blockchain really to have an impact in 2017 and beyond. Um, and I also think you saw a lot of interest internationally. I uh, read somewhere that over 50% of the attendees at Consensus were out from outside of the U.S., and there were also a lot of uh, international regulators there discussing uh, their country's initiatives to become more blockchain-friendly and figure out some of these issues like the custody issues um, and kind of become an innovation hub 
to facilitate the implementation of these technologies. Yeah, it's really interesting. We talked about how FinCEN and the IRS were early entrants among regulators into this space, setting guidance that both gave those regulatory agencies insight and familiarity into this area, but also kind of um, got them ahead of, of regulators around the world in terms of thinking about regulation in those space. On the securities and commodities side, the U.S. is, is probably more catching up um, than leading. And you see regulators in Switzerland and Singapore, uh, Gibraltar, Malta, um, coming out with regulatory frameworks that you know divide this asset class in different ways uh, that uh, are more accommodating of some of the recent developments. Uh, and then we see countries, uh, among them Bermuda, uh, you know, really stepping forward and saying, hey, look, we're, we want to be innovators and leaders in this space. Uh, we want to do that responsibly. Um, but we, you know, we want to put a regulatory framework in place that uh, that protects investors, protects markets, um, but also encourages innovation. Um, yeah, and I think, um, so the Bermuda Premier, David Burt, was there and spoke, and he really emphasized they've, they've passed two acts recently, the ICO Act and the Digital Asset Business Act, to kind of set a regulatory framework for these companies to implement um, ICOs or digital asset um, applications more generally. Um, but the underlying message of his talk was protecting consumers and preventing money laundering um, and, you know, doing it in a safe and secure manner. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. We always talk about in the U.S. how the states are, la- are kind of the laboratories for innovation, for regulation. Uh, it may be in this case that... Um, uh, that a number of the jurisdictions that uh, the U.S. works with on a variety of issues or that uh, U.S. businesses um, and, uh, and others uh, operate in may end up informing the way the U.S. looks at this from a regulatory uh, perspective. Um, so, so, it's, so, but I think that, that consensus is good for understanding also kind of what are the trends that are emerging um, I think that Chelsea, you got to uh, experience the need for better uh, digital identity um, and authentication mechanisms, right? <laughs> yes, there was a, a pretty long line for registration at Consensus this year, and there were a lot of scalability jokes about the technology and maybe the ticketing being run on the Bitcoin blockchain as it was a little bit slow. <laughs> a little bit so line snaking down 54th yes. Street out of the Hilton, right? <laughs> so, um, based on what you saw, you know, there and elsewhere. Maybe, you know, what do you see is coming in the next year? What do you think is is interesting, either from the technology side or from government's efforts to, to keep up? Yeah, I actually, I, I think what I'm, the main thing I took out of Consensus this week was really, like, positive excitement about implementing the technology in a safe way. And all, a lot of the regulators were there to talk to the industry to see what problems they're facing and to how to encourage innovation um, and make it easier for them to implement the technology while protecting consumers. Um, I think it was a really exciting week to have this kind of bridging between government regulation and the industry side and how to move forward. Yeah, so Lisa, I know you participated in um, some of the other conferences that were going on around uh, around the city. Um, kind of your thoughts and reflections from those and, and what you might see coming as a result of that? Well, I, I participated in the Accounting Blockchain Coalition conference, which was basically a day-long conference for tax and accounting issues. Of tax which, and accounting nerds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, of which there are many issues, and, and you know, many one, nerds. 
and many nerds, yes, myself included. And, um, you know, we, we talked a lot about, um, you know, trying to get the IRS to the next level of guidance. It's been, you know, four years now since they've issued that initial round of guidance. A lot of people have been asking for additional guidance. Um, you have seen a lot of movement on the, on the IRS side, on the enforcement side. You know, the IRS is kind of divided into two. They've got the chief counsel side that provides guidance, and then they've got the enforcement side that does all the audits and, and challenges the tax positions. And last year, you, the uh, enforcement side issued a John Doe summons to Coinbase to try to get information about a bunch of its account holders. And, you know, there was a lot of litigation that ensued over that, but the, you know, the end result was that Coinbase was ordered to turn over some of its account holder information. And so the IRS is getting about 13,000 accounts um, from Coinbase. And all of those are likely to filter into its audit system and its criminal investigation system. The IRS has has formed a team of criminal investigators that are focused on cryptocurrency issues. Um, unfortunately, the guidance side isn't moving as quickly. <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, much to our dismay, well, right. it could be a good thing or a bad thing for advisors because people will need, still need our advice. Um, but they, you know, they have been working on guidance, but they haven't really been able to reach much of a consensus to provide guidance. And I think that's what, what accountants and lawyers are, are struggling with right now. Yeah, I think that's right. Jack, you know, we talked uh, early on uh, about some of the things that we're seeing coming from FinCEN, coming from the states. What do you see coming next in this area? You know, I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, I was not able to go to consensus. And one of the reasons why is uh, the president's determination to basically pull out of the Iran deal. Uh, and I think there are a couple of implications related to that. First, as many people know, earlier this year, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control sanctioned the petrocurrency. Uh, and cryptocurrency. the, Venezuelan, the, the cryptocurrency, Venezuelan cryptocurrency called the petrocurrency. Uh, and OFAC also declared that when individuals or entities are listed, um, their digital currency wallets, OFAC is the one entity that regulatory, they, they refer to digital currency. Um, I think you're going to see more people designated, uh, and their property, including, uh, you know, their virtual currency assets will be specifically listed uh, and designated. And I think that there's a higher probability that there are other governments that get into this sovereign cryptocurrency space. And it'll be interesting, this dynamic, the EU is already starting to push back against the president's determination related to Iran, uh, where we have Brexit that may happen, and the UK may, you know, disentangle itself from the EU system. So, I think you will see this interesting rise of different types of sovereign cryptocurrency, and how is that going to be treated from a regulatory standpoint? And what are the challenges? You know, if the U.S. government, for example, says we don't want you dealing with a sovereign cryptocurrency, uh, what sort of effect will that have on different types of? Uh, whether you're a U.S. person or not U.S. person, you may have different types of flexibility and choices to make. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think all of this um, has highlighted for people, there's a common trope that cryptocurrency is entirely unregulated. And I think 
just from our brief discussion today, you can see it's regulated uh, in many ways, uh, possibly too many ways, um, and not necessarily even from a substantive perspective, but just the number of different uh, agencies participating and the differences in the ways that they that they view it. Just in the conversation today, we we know that that FinCEN uh, views cryptocurrency or convertible virtual currency as as currency, where the IRS sees it as property. Um, and the SEC and the CFTC and state regulators each have their own different ways that they that they view cryptocurrency. So one of the things that uh, I hope we see uh, in the in the coming year uh, is more harmonization, more regulatory harmonization around the ways that governments view cryptocurrency. Um, and I'm encouraged by uh, actions in other governments in other countries like Switzerland uh, and Singapore, which have been issuing guidance. Um, that seeks to harmonize or at least talk about how regulatory regimes relate to one another with respect to cryptocurrency. Um, jurisdictions like Bermuda, uh, that are, that are saying, look, we want to, we want to get this right, which we know means kind of an integrated regulatory approach to the currency. And hopefully that'll help at, for U.S. regulators at least show some options and some, what, some ways that, um, digital assets, crypto assets, can be regulated in a more integrated uh, in a more integrated fashion. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and I I hope we see more of, um, is that we saw that it's not just companies experimenting with blockchain technology, uh, but governments also. And so my old uh, agency, and I know many many of our listeners um, uh, from that agency have familiar familiarity also. Um, uh, the Department of Homeland Security is actually very active in this space through the Science and Technology Directorate working with components like uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection uh, and others looking at, well, how can this technology, how can blockchain technology help government actually carry out its functions? How can blockchain technology make government more efficient or more effective? How can government harness and leverage uh, a lot of the research and development, piloting, uh, and other activity that's going on in the private sector to help make government's job easier? So I encourage everyone out there who's... uh, all of our listeners who are from government agencies think about maybe how the technology uh, can be helpful to you, especially understanding that, of course, it is not unregulated, uh, that the cryptocurrency side has plenty of regulations, um, and that uh, that your agencies may be actively regulating it right now. Um, but that second, um, the technology, the underlying technology itself may be useful uh, and uh, and helpful in helping agencies carry out their missions. So with that, uh, we'll wrap up. Let me say thank you to Jack, uh, to Lisa, to Chelsea. Uh, this has been episode 217 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, blockchain takes over the podcast once again. Uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, coming up, we'll be joined by Nick Bilton, author of American Kingpin, uh, by Kirsten Nielsen, the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, and a number of other guests. Uh, and we hope that you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.